On January 9th, 1956, in a situation that is familiar to many of us, five missionary men were slain one day by the Walrani tribe in South America. Their names were Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and Ed McCulley. They were speared in one of the earliest contacts with this tribe of jungle dwellers, and it was an occurrence which to many people seemed to be the death knell of that evangelistic outreach. That's a familiar story, but what may not be as familiar is the response of some of the widows. Elizabeth Elliot, in particular, her biographer writes this, within three weeks of Jim's death, Betty, Elizabeth Betty, Betty started a brand new journal live streaming in ink both the volatile flow of her emotions and the resolute determination of her intentions. Here's what Betty's journal said. Life begins a new chapter, this time without Jim or any hope of seeing him in this life. Twenty days ago, he was killed by the Walrani Indians on the, on the Rio Kurarai. Oh, how I pray for conforming to the acceptable will of God. I do not want to miss one lesson. Yet I find that events do not change souls. It is our response to them which finally affects us. I find that though I am in a new place of yieldedness and utter prostration before him who has thus planned my life, little things remain between me and God. Big things in his sight, lack of patience with Indians, laziness in myself, failure to discipline myself to prepare pot properly for school meetings, etc. Oh God, you know what they're saying. You're wonderful. You're such a rebuke. You're such a testimony, a challenge, etc. If only they knew. You alone know, Lord Jesus. Come, purge, purify, make me like unto your glorious self. I long now to go to the Waurani 20 days after they killed her husband. She says, the two things, the only things to which I look forward now are the coming of Christ and my going to the Walrani. Fast forward two and a half years and the biographer notes, on Monday, October 6th, Betty, Elizabeth, Val, her daughter, Rachel Saint, Dayuma, the Walrani women, and five Quechua men, those were Indian men from another tribe, carrying the three-year-old Val and uh, the missionary's gear, they hit the trail. It took three days of hard trekking, climbing, and canoeing. The Indians fished and hunted along the way, and Betty began to get to know who was who, including Ipa, the young Walrani mother in the group. At one campsite, Betty wrote, We had a good swim while the men set up the tall razor grass stalks for our sleeping huts. As I write by firelight, sitting on the sand, little Val, her daughter, is singing Jesus Loves Me at the top of her healthy lungs, lying all by herself on some banana leaves in the shelter a few yards away. And by my side sits sweet-faced Ipa nursing her son. I showed her Jim's picture, pasted in the front of my diary. Her husband killed mine, and I love her. Her husband killed mine, and I love her. Isn't that amazing? Would you or I be able to do that? Does that, does that blow your mind 
as it does mine, that someone could demonstrate care and love for someone who had been part of and, and, and it represented so much pain and loss in one's life. Our passage this morning is going to encourage and convict us, I think, along these lines, both to understand God's love for us and to spur us on in our expression of similar love to those around us. So if you would, take your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to parachute into a context this morning where Jesus is dropping a bomb onto the theological collective of the day. He has a crowd of followers, of skeptics, of of curious onlookers around him, and the Lord Jesus deems it time to put a stake in the ground of sorts. He proclaims in Matthew 5, verse 17, that he hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And one of the nuances of the fulfillment is fleshed out in the subsequent verses where he eviscerates the weak and shallow understanding of the law that the current theologians of the day had, the scribes, the Pharisees. A repeating refrain of, you've heard it said, occurs, which is then followed by some aspect of the Levitical law that was currently being inadequately understood and followed and applied by the Jews of the time. And in each of these instances, Jesus drives home the point that the law is not merely about the letter of obedience, but about the relation of hearts and fullness of lives to God's will. For example, they've heard it said, you shall not murder. But Jesus says that you need to watch your hearts for anger. Because anger convicts and condemns as much as murder does. Or they'd been hearing, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus presses the implications of that into the realm of lustful thinking and its resulting condemnation and consequences. And so in the flow of this line of preaching, Jesus speaks our text for this morning. Let's look at verses 43 to 48. It says this, You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Lord, your words here are, are striking. I beg of you that you would open our eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and then hearts to absorb and to live out. God, magnify your love for us in our eyes. Magnify your character in our thinking so that we would be then inspired and strengthened to live this out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the same vein of thinking, Jesus takes a statement of the Jews of the day that they had accepted and breaks it down and then reconstructs it into an accurate understanding of God's truth in the matter. This is done with authority 
That's, that's, how, the, that's how the sermon ends after chapter, uh, at, at the end of chapter 7. He was teaching them as one having authority. And that's why the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So he does this with authority as only Jesus can break down and reconstruct since he is God with the fullest awareness and understanding of the law's intent from the beginning. And so in this passage, we're going to see two reconstructions of our understanding of God-like love. All right, the Jews think that they know what love is and how it's required under the law and how it should be demonstrated in their lives. But the first reconstruction is a theological reconstruction. Jesus addresses what they thought they knew about love, what they thought they knew about the law's intent regarding love. In verse 43, he says, You've heard it said, so this is what the Pharisees and the scribes are all teaching, You've heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And indeed, right, the law does say, Love your neighbor. Leviticus 19.18 specifically gives the second greatest commandment. It says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But notice how the Jewish, Jewish teaching of the day put a limit on the law to just, just the very letter of the law. And by so doing, encourage the people to add an additional allowance. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Yeah, the law says to love your neighbor, but if we just limit it to your neighbor and those who uh, treat you well, who are pleasant, who are like-minded, who are similar, etc., etc., around you, as long as we love them, we can do what we want with the other people around us, those who may not be so agreeable. And that is not in the law. But the Jews thought that the idea of love was satisfied as long as it was extended to your neighbor, which they interpreted to be those around them in pleasantness and fellowship. And so if they did that, then those who weren't their neighbors, especially their enemies, they were free to hate and to despise. That was their understanding of what God required regarding love. And they would have had plenty. They would have had plenty of enemies to hate. Society at that time was fraught with those who made life hard, unfair, and miserable for the Jews. Think of tax collectors constantly cheating the Jews out of their money. Think of the Romans who dominated their society, who imposed their laws upon the people, who insisted upon bribes in the midst of carrying out a, a authority and you know, policing and, and those types of things, much less than the surrounding cultures of the nations around the Jews who all had negative and difficult relationships with them. And then you have even the enemies within their own culture within their own people that we just inevitably experience. And so, it's a fairly easy, from a fleshly standpoint, it's a fairly easy addition to the law. Sure, love your neighbor. Love those around you. Especially those that it serves you to love. But hey, if they don't treat you right, and those you have a negative relationship with, then it's all good to go ahead and just level some hate and derision at those ones. So that was their understanding. That was their theology of love. Love those immediately around you that it works out well to love, but then those who you don't like and don't get along with and who make life hard for you, go ahead and hate them. 
and we're all good with the law. So Jesus takes that theology and he deconstructs it and then reconstructs it. He starts out with the authoritative, but I say to you, which we've got to pause for a second and remember. Consider this. If you, if you remember when Pastor Rick was teaching through Mark, we saw this time and time again, right, where Jesus was setting himself against over and against the theological authorities of the day, over and against the scribes, the Pharisees. And he does that here when he says this. They are the ones who would have preached, you have heard it said. Right? They are the ones who would have preached, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They are the ones who would have taught that as being God's law. And Jesus takes what they say and he sets against it what he says in conflict. Who is he to do this? Who is this rabbi who's coming and saying, yeah, every, every, you, you've heard what these theological leaders of the day are saying, but I say to you. That was the question that the people asked. And that's the question that we know the answer to be, well, he's the son of God. But I bet the people's ears perked up every time he said, but I say to you, this guy's getting after it. This guy is holding no punches. He's taking it to them in successive heights. As Jesus says time and time again, you've heard it said this by those over there, but I say to you, and then he drives the law home and gives them an understanding. And so even just when he says, I say to you, he deconstructs it. He takes their theological house of how they've been taught to love their neighbor and hate their enemy, and he demolishes it with those three words. But I say, boom, knocked down flat. That's wrong. I'm telling you that's wrong, and now I'll tell you what's right. So then he reconstructs the theological house. You want to write theology of love from God's perspective? It's this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you love everyone even and especially your enemies those who make life hard for you now you're all you're all well taught you're all familiar with the Bible, you've heard uh, uh, James Sullivan preached a few weeks ago where he even brought out the three different words for love, you know, you, you've got eros and phileo and agapao or agape and, and surely, surely Jesus here is using phileo love, right? Surely he's just saying, look, you just have to be familiar and friendly and accommodating and, and, and kind, right? That's, that's all he's expecting. That's what phileo is. But no. Jesus says you have to agape love your enemies. This is the sacrificial, the intentional, the others serving kind of love that God himself manifested when he so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. That's the kind of love. So where the theological leader said it was good to extend that love to your neighbors, Jesus says we must extend that love 
to all, up to and including our enemies, up to and including someone who persecutes us, someone who fires us from our job, someone who betrays us relationally, someone who intentionally sabotages an aspect of our life, someone who bullies us, someone who harasses us, someone who takes our stuff. That's, that's what happens in the, in the passage right before this. Is, um, you know, he says, look, if someone asks you for your cloak, then give them your tunic. If someone asks you to go one mile, then give them two. Give to someone who begs of you. This is the kind of, of, of sacrificial love that Jesus is teaching his followers to have. Jesus says, extend agape love to them. And the Lord isn't even content to let it remain there. He commands that this agape love, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says this agape love is to be manifested and proven by your intercession, my intercession, on their behalf. That's right. He doesn't say, pray for their destruction and for your protection from them. He says, pray for their good. The, um, the, the word that's translated for, pray for those. It's best understood to be pray on behalf of those who persecute you. And so the Jews are sitting there thinking, the tax collector who cheats me? Yes, sacrificially love, intentionally pray for their good. What about the Roman who beat me in the street the other day and, and, and put my brother in prison for no good reason other than wanting a bribe? Yes. Sacrificially love and pray intentionally for them. The surrounding peoples who scorn and mock them and look down on them as Jews who make fun of them for their odd little cultural idiosyncrasies? Yes. Sacrificially love and pray for them. This is a crazy difficult concept. But Jesus is explicitly and radically redefining the people's understanding of what it means to be a follower of God. This is his stake in the ground. This is, this is him saying in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what it means to be a follower of God. To be his child. And look at this. That's how he motivates this. He ties these commands to love and pray for even those who persecute you to the reality that doing so is a part of the process of growing into the likeness of the Father. Look at verse 45. So that, okay, so if you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, as you do those things, you do those so that you may... Be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You can have the idea of so that you may become, you may be in the process of becoming sons of your Father who is in heaven. God is so gracious, isn't He? What does this Father who is in heaven do? He causes His Son to rise on the evil. I love that. He causes his son 
It's not just the sun. This is, this is God's sun, right, that he lit in fire, and he hung in space, and he owns, and he causes it to come up and to come down, and he does whatever he wants with this, and he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. So here Jesus cites the blessings that the Father literally rains down upon the believer and the unbeliever alike. He gives that as a reason for us to love our enemies because doing that, loving our enemies, makes us, processes us, shapes us, manifests us to be children of God. Because that's what God is like. God doesn't select who gets to receive his life-giving, love-demonstrating power of sunshine based upon the morality He demonstrates that loving blessing to all. Rebel and enemy alike. And this this is a principle that you and I ought to be able to understand with even more insight than the Jews who were listening to Jesus at that point in time. I mean, think about this. The principle is God loves all. The unrighteous, the evil, the, 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 the enemies, and the rebels included. And that's what we were. That's what we just sang about and celebrated, right? Because the truth of the matter is that God demonstrates his own love for us in that what? While we were still sinners. That's not pleasant. I'm pretty sure Pastor Rick tried to destroy any sense of of, uh, self-inflated ego, you know, when we started Ephesians 2 a couple weeks ago. And that's the reality of, of humanity in relation to God outside of the redemption of Christ. But how easily do we forget that? How easily do I forget that? See, we were active enemies of God when he sent his son to take on the penalty of sin for his enemies. That's the greatest act of agape love ever. And he did that when we were active, rebellious enemies. And if you haven't repented and received the gift of life, that gift of love from God through Jesus, then now's the day to do so. Recognize that outside of that, you are an active enemy of God, but that he is so gracious and he says, I I don't want you to remain condemned. I have offered you a way for forgiveness. I, I, I plead with you, repent of your sins. And place your faith in a loving, in, in a God who extends such loving kindness and mercy to you. Let your, let your own ability, inability to love the difficult around you cause you to be amazed at God's love for you. We're singing, we're singing the songs that we sang, and I'm I'm just feeling so crushed by the conviction of the weakness of my own love for those around me 
And that should then cause me, and it does, and it should cause all of us to be all the more amazed by God's love for us. And if you have received salvation, then remember, remember from whence you came. And the example that God set in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us as the demonstration of God's agape love for us. God offers salvation in love to all. All. And we were enemies and rebels when he offered that love to us. And so, the theological point is, just as God causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on all, which are physical and visible expressions of love and care to the righteous and unrighteous alike, so we grow into his likeness when we love and pray for, pray on behalf of our enemies and persecutors. Let these words just just ring for a moment in your mind now and next time when you're interacting with somebody who who's just making life hard. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Talk about praying for your enemies. Jesus had been beaten, had been mocked, had been scourged, had been crucified, and was on the verge of death And he's doing it in love and he's praying for their good. Amazing. And so that sets the theological house in order, as it were. Children of God need to have a theology of prayerful love that extends not only to neighbor, but even to enemy and combatant. But they also need to have a life of love. And this involves our second point, which is this. It's a practical reconstruction. See, Jesus Jesus is a good preacher. He doesn't leave truth in the theoretical realm. He doesn't just say, love and pray for your enemy and then sort of hope you figure it out, hope they figure it out, what that means. He reconstructs their practice of love. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? See, these verses are the essence, right? These verses are the essence of what the Jews had heard it said before. Hey, love your neighbor, go ahead and hate your enemy. And so this this practical uh, expression then is is the outworking of that theology, when you love those who love you, when you greet only your brothers. See, they would love and warmly greet those who were pleasant and like them and those who loved and warmly greeted them back. Oh, but not those enemies or those persecutors. Mm-mm. They hated them. That was, the, that was the practical outworking in their lives of their understanding of love. But that doesn't set anybody apart as unique as a follower of God? Right? That's not, because that's not how God loves. See, this is Jesus' point. Even the dreaded tax collector does that, and all the crowd goes, and maybe we don't have, you know, the same type of understanding of the word tax collector. Insert 
in your mind, the worst person you can think of. The worst category of people. The atheist, the liberal, the Republican, the Democrat, I don't know, whatever. Whoever is in your head is the worst person. Even they do that. And Jesus hammers it down again. He goes, even the Gentiles do that. <gasps> but again, we're like, yeah, well, I'm a Gentile. But think about the worst person in your mind the person you would never want to be like, the person you would never think is loving, the person you would never hold up as an example of how to live, they do that. They love those who love them back. And they warmly greet those who warmly greet them. Because it's self-serving, right? Makes you feel good. It, 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 it brings you, you joy. It brings you affirmation. But self-serving love is not God-like love. But we're naturally good at self-serving love. Anyone can love the person who loves them back. Anyone's excited to see someone and fellowship with someone who's a brother, someone who's like-minded and similar with joy in the interaction. Even pagans do that. But look at verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And there's the solution. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is not the idea of moral perfection or of absolute holiness, you know, never sinning. That's not what he's saying when he says you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Frankly, there's other places for that, but not here. This is the idea of perfection as maturity and fullness. What's the topic at hand? Love. See, perfect, mature, full love, like our Heavenly Father is expressed to all around, neighbor and enemy alike. That's what God does. His love is perfect, mature, and full. And God's children have and share that kind of love with others as well, even enemies. So when we only love those who love us, if, if this is the pie chart of, of God-like love, we've only got a piece of it. If we only extend warm greetings of affection and kindness and welcome and fellowship to those who are like-minded, to those who we naturally get along with, to those that we naturally agree with, we've only got a slice of this love. It's not mature and full and perfect like God's love is. So the contrast here is not to just love those who love you, but also love those who hate you because that's what sons and daughters of God do. The differentiation here is to not just warmly greet and treat those who like you, but to do that to those who are as different as different can be, even to the point of being so different that they are your enemies and your persecutors. Because as you do that, you both grow in and prove yourself to be 
sons and daughters of God. Because that's what God the Father does. He loves those who actively hate and rebel and persecute Him by sending the sunshine and the rainfall upon them. I mean, think about, think about all the good, all the blessing that society around us enjoys. That is God's perfect, mature, full love being demonstrated to them. And he loves those who actively hate and rebel and persecute him. He loved them and he loves them by sending his very own son, who's the one preaching these words, to come as a servant and die on the cross to take the penalty for their wretched, self-serving sins. And then he would rise in power and then he would invite all, regardless of their current state, to come to him in forgiveness and to find eternal life. And so I want us to think about these reconstructions in our own lives for a moment. Does the right theology of God-like love exist in our heart and mind? Do we have the right theology of what it means to love those around? I think the answer can be found in how we view and consider those around us. Is there a category where someone is deemed unworthy of intentional love and purposeful prayers? Is there, is there a category of someone who we just cannot bring ourselves to pray for their good? Is there a category of, of someone who's done something, who is something, who represents something, and we just cannot bring ourselves to intentionally and sacrificially love and serve them? Then we're not showing God like love. If something has been done to us, for example, or said to us, where then we have such anger or bitterness in our hearts that we sim simply can't bring ourselves to go to God for their good, then we're deficient in our understanding of who we were when God set His love upon us. And that's why the gospel is at the heart of this. Because as we meditate and marinate upon who we were when God loves us, then it becomes easier to love all around us with this full love. That's the theological side. What about the right practice of God-like love? I want, us, I want us to think of this in terms of sort of like an expanding circles of a relationship, okay? Our practice of God-like love. Let's start with family or roommates, Okay, those in our, in our very immediate circle, those who are closest, usually these aren't even straight up enemies, right? But even in this first circle, I struggle with and I am convicted by how shallow my love can be. I can forget I can struggle to sacrificially love and intentionally pray for my wife and kids simply because they've done something to annoy me. Or 
maybe they haven't satisfied my own selfish preferences in some way or another. And so, so then my love kind of withdraws and gets all shriveled and wrinkled and it's really hard. I don't, even, I don't even want to pray for them. I don't even want to serve them. I don't even want to uh, extend care for them because, oh, look at what they've done. How ungodlike. Take the circle, open it up a little bit. Let's, let's, let's think about church family, all right? Are there people in the church, and generally we're fairly like-minded, right? I mean, we're here for a common purpose and because of a common reason. Are there people in the church like-minded as we all generally are that we, just be honest with yourself, that you can't bring, you, you struggle to bring yourself to love, that it's hard to pray for, that it's difficult to greet affectionately. Maybe someone just kind of rubs you wrong. Or maybe they've even done something to offend you or to hurt you. And so often it's very easy for our choice then to just be, well, I'm just going to sort of avoid them. I'll focus my efforts and energies elsewhere. And, and Lord willing, our, our paths won't necessarily cross with any sort of uh, uh, closeness or intimate proximity. How ungodlike. You say, enough, Aaron! Stop it! I say that to myself. It's convicting enough, but no, no, I'm sorry, it's not enough. Because none of these are even enemies or persecutors. That's what, that's what just kills me about my own struggles in my family. They love me. And yet my own selfish heart responds so wrongly and unlovingly simply because of just some of the, the inane little ways that, 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 that they provoke me or, or, or don't satisfy me or whatever that then I withhold my love and prayers. How little... Do I view God's love for me that I would then respond to them that way? And they're not even enemies or persecutors. So we have to open it up more. Because we have to open it up to those who are enemies and persecutors because that's how far God's love goes and that's how far our love as His children is to go. So expand the circle. Think about your job. Think about society around, and this is where it can, start to, it can start to get a little bit more aggressive. And you know this, and frankly, it could just get worse and worse as the days come, and yet still, the command holds because God's love remains. Think about your boss, or your co-workers, or your city, and county, council, your governor, your president, the opposing political party, someone from a contradictory religion or worldview like Islam, moral liberalism, agnosticism, a homo or transsexual lifestyle. 
any and all of these types of people that, that it may be so easy for us to categorize them into the realm of, uh, I'm, I may not actively hate them. You know, those Jews are saying hate your enemies. Well, at least I don't hate them. But do you love them? Do I warmly greet them and invite them into fellowship and, and, and relationship? Do they get agape love from us? Do they get prayers from us on their behalf for their good? Do they get warm greetings and invitations into relationship? Oh, Mission Road, I would... I would pray and, and, and trust that anybody, regardless of what they look like, regardless of how they smell, regardless of who they're holding hands with, regardless of what political slogan they're wearing on their hat when they walk through the door, that anybody who walks through the doors of our church would be loved and welcomed. As a church, as individuals in our various contexts. Not, not, to, the, not to the exclusion of, of speaking truth and sharing the gospel and all those types of things, but in terms of our demeanor and in terms of our attitude and in terms of our warmth and in terms of our affection for them. We just have to remember, how did God treat us? Because if they don't get agape love or prayers or warm greetings, are they getting avoidance? Are these people in our lives getting maybe mental fury and angst from us? Are they getting cold shoulders or, you know, those, 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 those kind of like sideways looks of, of barely veiled contempt or confusion or disdain. Brothers and sisters, let's become like our Heavenly Father. Let's show love to all and pray for the good of all. If you struggle with this, and I'm not going to ask for a showing of hands, I would assume everything would go, every hand would go up. If you struggle with this of showing love to all of those around you, take some small steps today. The first step would be repent. Repent of the littleness of your own understanding and appreciation of the gospel and of God's love for you and repent of the lack of love in your life. Second, then meditate on the gospel because the demonstration of God's love for us in the saving work of Christ on our behalf, that's the well from which we draw the love to then share and extend to those around us. And third, consider the person or people in your life who you struggle to love and to pray for. Think about them. Name them. Visualize them. And intentionally set out this week to, pray for, to, to, to change that. Pray for their good. Pray for their good. Pray for a chance to show them love and then consider a specific way in which you can do that. And then do it. And then look, it, it, this doesn't say love them and everything will be hunky-dory. 
This doesn't say love your enemy and they're just suddenly going to soften towards you and, and it's going to be wonderful and life is all going to change for the better. It doesn't say that. He just says, be a child of God, right? And love like God. And then trust that even if you receive backlash for it, even if you receive then further persecution for it, rejoice because like Jesus says in the beginning of his sermon, blessed are you, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Great. 